Good morning, North Boulevard. Always so good to be with you, East Campus. Good morning to all who are watching online, including some I know from West, some from East, some who have just joined us in the online community. Before we go any further, join me in congratulating all of our graduates who have walked across the stage and celebrated their next milestone. Preschool is no small feat, Anna, and you look good walking across that stage. That's to my daughter. I want to begin by uncovering a fear, confessing a fear as well, so I'll be personal in this, unearthing one that I have dealt with before. Deal with it sometimes now. It's not a phobia. It's not one of those sharp, acute fears that gets you on a specific issue. It's a nagging fear. It's like the background song to some people's lives. It's definitely been for mine in stretches. It's the kind of fear that keeps you wondering if you're doing it right, if you have enough, if you're making it, if you're succeeding, or maybe you're falling behind and you're just a total failure at life. It's the fear called FOMO. Can you say it? Do you know what it means? Fear of missing out. Okay, this is going to help me. And if you'll talk like that through the sermon, it will also help me. Let's be friends here. Fear of missing out. It's a nagging fear. It stays in the back of the mind. It's the fear that says you don't have enough. You haven't accomplished enough. You're not enough. You won't be enough. You're not doing the right thing at the right time with the right people. So I experienced it last week when Glenn Robb whipped this thing out. So it stirred up a little controversy uh, and some questions. Glenn showed us a, a legitimate gold medal from the United States Olympics, but it's the United States Skill Olympics. Let me clarify, it's not the one you necessarily watch on TV. It is a real thing. On the front it says it's 1976, and Glenn received this for being the graphics communications post-secondary winner of these Olympics. That's a true thing. And as I saw him do this, I thought, good for you, Glenn. And then almost immediately, I was like, FOMO, what am I doing with my life right now? I don't have a gold medal like that. FOMO leads to the inability to be totally satisfied at any given moment with where you are, who you're with, what you are doing, and what you have. That's FOMO. Today you are regularly told that what you have, the way you look, what you drive, where you live is insufficient. The economy is driven on that, driven on perpetual discontent, which means some of the very best thinkers in our day are working around the clock to keep you dissatisfied. Mm, that's kind of a hard truth. But they are stirring you up keeping you dissatisfied, making sure you don't feel real total satisfaction or else they won't be able to put the money you've got in your pocket into theirs. Now, I'm not bashing anybody. I'm just stating a fact. That, that's just the truth. Uh, when we talk about raising children, one of the favorite things we enjoy talking about is the first word. What were the first words my, my kids said? And I've always uh, raised them believing the truth, by the way, that the first word came out of their mouth was dada. Me and mama were in a race, and I wasn't going to lose that race. Dada, dada, dada. So they said that, kind of the first words that came out of their mouth. Maybe one of them said mama first, but that's not the story I'm living with today. I think most of them said dada first. But the, 
the real truth actually behind the first thing that I taught my kids to communicate wasn't something that I taught them first to say out of their mouths. If you can get the camera on me, I want to make sure everybody can see my hands. Because what I'm about to do, some of you fell for this and trained your kids to do as well. Before they could speak, they did this. What does it mean? More. It's the sign for more. And that's the dumbest thing you can ever do as a parent. Because it's going to take them way longer than you've got to teach them to say enough. Enough. And some people make it to 20 and they don't know how to say enough. They make it to 30, 40, 50, on up to their 80s and they don't know how to say enough. They're still stuck on this. More, 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 more. I'm going to read to you a poem. It was a, it's a poem written by a 14-year-old. His name is Jason Lehman. It's a really mature poem for a 14-year-old. He submitted it, or somebody on his behalf submitted it, to Abigail Van Buren. You'll know because of the column Dear Abby that she was responsible for. So when this poem was submitted to Abigail Van Buren, she did the research to find out that it was really written by a 14-year-old boy. And then she published it in her column in February 14, 1989. Let me read it to you. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I really wanted, the warmth, the blossoming of nature, I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, with the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over. But I never got what I wanted. Smart 14-year-old, isn't he? He could see the whole thing play out. And if the pattern was to continue like he'd seen it in everybody else, he's just going to live his life chasing the wind. Never reaching it, always searching for it. Sometime maybe capturing it and eating it, only to find that it didn't fill him up. And then it's over. It's all over. And he dies, never getting what he wants. I'm not a poet, but if I were to add additional verses, I would add a verse about your job. I'm a carpenter, but it's business I've always wanted. Or you pick the professions. I'd add it about your car. I drive this, but I've always really wanted to own one of those. I drive a car, I wanted a truck. I drive a truck, I want a car because of gas <laughs> mileage. Uh, I drive a van, and I'll take anything else. <laughs> I'm just kidding, honey. I'm just kidding. Um, the house you own. I got this house. Maybe we even built this house, but it's really that house that I want. My dream house that I want, that we never did, and other people might have done, but we didn't do. It's the person you're with. I got this wife, but... Kind of, I'm kind of interested to see about that one or this man, and I'm, I'm wondering if life would be better with that man. And you never get what you want. FOMO 
as a, as a phrase, might have been coined recently, but it's actually as old as humanity. It's an ancient fear. It's settled in our hearts very early in the story of our beginnings. If you're familiar with the Adam and Eve story, you'll find it in that story. The fear of missing out. The serpent, as clever and crafty as he was, learned to play on that fear so that Eve would begin to think there's something more I'm supposed to be chasing. Something I don't currently have that I need to be satisfied. That God's, if you will, holding out on me. He didn't share it with me. I don't have it right now. Why don't I have it right now? I'm supposed to have it. It goes like this. Genesis 3 verse 4, he's talking the serpent about a tree that exists that they were supposed to not eat from. And he says, if you eat of it, you won't, you won't die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, something's going to happen that you've been wanting to happen. Your eyes will be open and you will be like, God, I want you to hear this. You won't die. God knows when you eat of it, you blank. You'll finally get that life you've been wanting. They're literally in paradise, and FOMO can still happen in the human heart. Somebody would say to you, there's something more you need to go and get. The problem with dissatisfaction is that it leads to miserable living, but that's not even the ultimate problem. Dissatisfaction is not just miserable. Dissatisfaction is dangerous. It's very dangerous. Often, when you're in your deep dissatisfaction, that's when you make your most destructive decisions. Let me clarify the scope of this sermon so you know what I'm not saying, and then we'll come right back to this. There are lots of different types of dissatisfaction. When Jesus was dissatisfied with the injustice happening in the money exchange system in the temple, he did something about it. He overthrew those tables so as to kind of take that call and bring justice where there was injustice. John the Baptist steps onto the scene. He's dissatisfied with the hearts and the minds of men and women. They're not really ready for the king. And that sin in their life dissatisfies them. So he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Uh, we're not satisfied with lostness. That's why we have a New Day vision. That's why we dug deep and we gave and we contribute and we make disciples and we plant churches. Because we're not satisfied with lostness. The Great Commission is geared towards that. The dissatisfaction I'm speaking of that's very dangerous is the dissatisfaction of having a heart that thirsts and never knowing where to find the thing it thirsts for. That's going to leave you very panicked. It'll leave you, leave you making compulsory purchases, promiscuous decisions, and you'll become very argumentative and combative and you'll sow seeds of discord because you'll just make a wreck of the life's search to be satisfied. That's the kind I'm talking about. Now, what I'm going to read to you next brings us to Philippians chapter 4. This is the last sermon in a series called Rejoice, the Joy of a Christ-Centered Life. We've been working through uh, the letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote this letter. He wrote this letter while he was in prison. He wrote it to a people who were undergoing hardships and suffering. When he wrote it, uh, he didn't have anything to his name. He's poor. He had his personal freedoms ripped away from him. He had his privacy uh, taken away from him. And in the chapter that we're about to read, he's accomplishing a few things. First, he's saying thank you to the Philippian church because they had taken note of his, his situation and they provided aid. Actually, the 
time when he's giving thanks, they were the only church to provide aid. And so he's, he's grateful for their concern for him and their, and their aid. But while he's giving thanks, he's highlighting something that he found that he wants them to find. A secret. Secret of contentment. And so he, he models it for them. He mentions it. He kind of shows the beauty of that so that the Philippian church will find that. And, and live their lives the way Paul lived it. Check, check this out. Contrast what I'm about to read to you with the poem we just read. Go ahead and do that in your mind and just see the difference between these two lives. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need. Get it? He's saying thanks, but he's also showing them something of higher importance. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I've been there. I know what it is to have plenty. I've been there too. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. I know you've read this. Some of you have read this a lot. Don't let that uh, just go right past you. I've learned the secret to be content in any, you got to be kidding me, and every, no way, situation. Whether well-fed or hungry. Whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the climax then to what he's saying. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. A miracle has taken place. In Paul, a miracle, the miracle of a totally satisfied heart. That's a miracle. If you point to the miracles in the Bible and you say they're only the eyes of the blind being opened and the lame man walking and the dead raised into life, I would say no, no, no. One of the great miracles in the Bible is right here in Philippians 4. A man has found his heart satisfied. That's unbelievable. That just doesn't happen. We're all chasing stuff. Right? That poem is true about all of us. But Paul says, I have experienced it. And I'm thankful for your gifts, but I'm content in any and every situation. This climaxes with verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Interestingly, it's one of the most often misused verses in all of the Bible. It's taken out of this context and put in other contexts. But I want to say something about this verse. If you want to quote it, and you say, all, I can do all this, I want to strongly encourage you to make sure that you don't just mean the good things, the positive things in life. This isn't a verse to say, I can do all, like reach my goals, accumulate the stuff that I have in my heart to accumulate because Christ gives me strength, or I can meet all of the positive moments because obviously Christ has empowered me to do so. This verse means I can do some really hard things. I can hunger through him who strengthens me. I can be brought low. I can have my life devastated through him who strengthens me. It's crucial when we say all things, we mean all things. This language is also in Romans chapter 8. As it is written, for your sake we face death. All day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Watch the language, same kind of language. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Same language, hard things. I can do hard things through Christ who strengthens me. You can take it all away from me. I can die and I will be satisfied because of him who loves me and strengthens me. All right, that's the context. My circumstances might be devastating, but they do not devastate me. I, Paul says, can't always change my circumstances, but I can always overcome them. Do you believe that? In Christ, you can't always change your circumstances, but you can always overcome them. Okay, so we obviously have then a contrast between what we read in the poem and what we've just read in this passage. For Paul, his joy is in Christ, and he's found what his heart's looking for. That's why we've called this series, Rejoice, the Joy of a Christ-Centered Life. Somebody said it to me once. The human heart can only rest when it has received heaven's best. i say it again. The human heart can only rest when it has received heaven's best. Paul says, I've done it. There's a miracle in my life. I'm satisfied. Before we go any further, let's make three agreements. A crowd this size, that's going to be impossible. At least maybe most of you will agree with me. Let's agree with this. First, we have not already attained to this. We haven't already attained to it. Um, I will be the first vulnerable one to say I'm not exactly in the same spot Paul finds himself in with this totally satisfied, Christ-centered heart all the time. I've just mentioned to you that I experienced FOMO just like the rest of us. So that's the first thing I'm asking you to agree with. We have not already attained to this kind of maturity. Can you agree with that? Say amen if you can. Okay. Second is a little harder of an agreement if you really think about it. Second thing I'm asking for us to agree around is this. This is where we want to be. Don't agree so quick. <laughs> like, well, I really like my stuff, actually. <laughs> I'm kind of tied to the things of this earth, actually. Right? So don't agree too quickly. But if we were to paint a picture of Christian maturity, could we say that where we're going is that we need less and less of the world's stuff to be totally satisfied? That, I'm, not, I'm not wishing this on anybody, but that if it all went away, our hearts would be satisfied. We'd have peace. We could still rejoice, right? If you agree that that's where we're headed, that's where we want to be, say amen. amen. Okay, don't force that if you don't really agree. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. The human heart's not geared that way, but that's where we're headed as a church. The third agreement then is this, that we will do whatever we must to get there. Hmm, okay. So if... Paul is here in total satisfaction. And our 14-year-old wisely recognizes that most of the time the human heart is here. We've agreed that we're in different areas here. Some of us kind of one strong foot in world's desires, another one in Christ. If we agree we're different levels here, the third thing I'm asking you to agree is whatever steps he lays out for us, we'll go do them. Because in the end... God's desire for you is that your heart would be totally satisfied in Jesus. Do you agree? We're going to go there. Say amen. Good. That does two things. One, it reassures that I'm not about to waste my time when I go through these steps. 
And most importantly, it reassures that you're not about to waste your life chasing the wind and satisfaction that can never be yours. So here are the steps that Paul lays out because he does know patiently, he knows that we're not all already there. So here's the first step. He says, make the choice to rejoice. That comes from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read it once and then I would really like to hear you read it alongside me. Here we go. First, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You read it with me this time. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. This time when we say it, emphasize the always if you can. Rejoice in the Lord I will say it again, rejoice. Now that always is a very big always. That, that must mean that there is always something you can rejoice about. That must mean that God truly satisfied Paul when he was in prison and that he could literally always still rejoice. The scriptures are really good about this always. Really good about them. It's a theme through the scripture. In just the same book in chapter 3, it says rejoice in the Lord always. Now, I don't have this next verse I'm going to put on the screen. So let's go a little old school. Can you actually look it up in your Bible? If you need to get a phone or the book itself open on your lap, I want you to meet me in Habakkuk chapter 3. It's in the Old Testament. You might not have found it in a long time. Habakkuk 3, verse 17. I'll give you a little time to get there. And I want you to see what this always is really about. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Habakkuk 3, if somebody beside you is using the table of contents, God bless them, don't pick on them. If you're that person, we love you for it. Keep searching. Habakkuk 3, this is a prophecy where Habakkuk catches a vision. And the vision he catches leads you with no reason to rejoice if you're all wrapped up in worldly things. But then something special happens, a miracle at the end of the vision. Though the fig tree does not bud, I'm in verse 17 of Habakkuk 3, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to you because you can just go to Kroger, but it means a lot to him. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, if you will, all of our bank accounts have been drained. All of our food resources dried up. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I cannot always change these circumstances, but I can overcome them. And thus I will rejoice because he is my strength. He is my strength. This is always, always. 1977, a character took the Broadway stage who stole the hearts of the American people. An orphan in a hard knock life who ran away from the orphanage, had her dog, and not much else, stood on the stage with the decision to make. How will I face the moment of always when it really hits me? And the job was given 
to Charles Strauss to pen some lyrics that would take this child who's already endearing and just imprint her on our hearts forever. And here are the lyrics. The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. Just thinking about tomorrow clears away the cobwebs and the sorrow till there's none. When I'm stuck with a... Thanks, Sean. That's gray and lonely. I just stick out my... And sing and say... Don't do it. Let's be mature. (laughs) She sings to face it. She sings actually to overcome in the middle of it. The fact that you know Annie won is because she could sing right there. That's how you know she won. Circumstances didn't steal her of her her joy. Uh, the, the, The scriptures talk a lot about joy and song, how that's a way we express our joy. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Why? You know that the Lord is God. It's he who made us. We are his. We are the people of of his pasture, the sheep of his pasture. I asked about 30 people this week as I was preparing for the sermon. I said, what's what I want you to do? I want you to close your eyes. And if you'd like to play along, you certainly can. I want you to think for just a minute about what it would look like for you to rejoice always. I just want you to picture yourself doing it. So I was, in a, I was in one room on Tuesday morning at 8. We closed our eyes. I said, now what do you see when I say, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I say rejoice. We waited a little bit. People started to see things. What they look like doing that. One guy said, I'm driving in my car. And tears are just streaming down my face. He said, and I quote, it's like joy is just leaking from me. Another person said, I'm, I'm out in the woods. I'm just by myself in the Lord. And I'm bursting with song. Out singing the birds. Another one said, I'm beside my kid's bed. Been a hard day. Maybe even been a hard day with the child. But we're singing a little song together that he learned at VBS or camp. And he's going off to bed. Now, I don't know what you see. There are personal practices, personal preferences. There are cultural ones. But then there are universal ones. Universal ones include shouting for joy to the Lord and singing joyful songs. That's kind of universal. It's also heaven's language. Singing is also heaven's language. When God wants to share his joy, Zephaniah 3 says he sings over you. Because you bring him joy, how does he let it out? He sings over you. So, shouting, that's a stretch, isn't it? (laughs) This is a church of Christ. Uh, Shouting might be hard for you. It might be a little bit of a stretch. If I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to rejoice and I want you to shout. It might be like, I'm not really ready for that. But I do want to show you a video where that happens anyway. Where I am in the video is in Bo in Sierra Leone. It's January of this year. I was supposed to preach and give you a little report about that, remember, and I didn't get an opportunity to do so. I do want you to know it was an incredibly meaningful trip for me. One of the most meaningful parts of the trip was this Friday morning I'm about to show you. We were told on Thursday afternoon 
that on Friday morning there would be a prayer marathon. That word scared us all the way. <laughs> it's like, we eat a lot. I don't know if I can do that. And they said, no, it's not as bad as you think. It's not 26.2 miles. It's only going to be about four miles. What we're going to do is we're going to start at an intersection with everybody in the global network, anybody in this national network, I should say, anybody who can make it, all the believers we can gather, we're going to start in an intersection, we're going to go all the way to the stadium about four miles away, and at every intersection we get to, we're going to pray, we're going to sing. So we start off, and I'm finding myself in a crowd of several hundred people, many of whom have suffered, are suffering, will suffer. person I found myself holding hands with and celebrating with, had been disowned from his family. Others that I had found myself celebrating with were still experiencing the upside-down life that was post-Civil War in Sierra Leone, but they were all content and joyful. So we get to an intersection, and we sing, and we pray, and then guy grabs a microphone, and he says, now we're going to shout. That's what I want you to see. Shouting the name Jesus, rejoicing always. It was as if quite a few of them had put their burdens and their problems right here and just shouted the name of Jesus right through them to say, I celebrate the victory that God has given me despite all this, despite hardship, despite what I've been through. Because the truth is there are many things that God has given you that cannot be taken away from you. Right? There's no devastating phone call you're going to get that's going to take them all away from you. God has given you reasons to rejoice, many of them. And these people found it and we shouted together. That's one. Make the choice to rejoice. The second thing that we, we know about this pathway to contentment is we got to learn to trust God with our burdens and thank God for our blessings at the same time. That's an emphasis right here in the next section we're going to read from Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, it keeps coming up, it's going to keep coming up. Every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What this means is to reach the place of contentment, we've got to deal with our anxiety. We've got to deal with anxiety. Now, anxiety is a multifaceted problem. If you need professional help, get professional help. We bless you in the name of the Lord. There are medications that help with chemical imbalances that create anxiety. One thing we also know is that when we as a people choose to increase our pace of life and therefore carry multiple problems and burdens simply because we can, because technology has equipped us to do so, we equip our pace of life and we decrease our time in prayer, we are perfectly positioned to become a society of anxiety. Do I need to say all that again? We increase pace of life, we decrease our time in prayer, we get anxiety. It's like, a, it's, it's a recipe for it. That's why... This phrase fits our nation so well, a society of anxiety. The CDC in 
February of 2021 said that now over 40% of the American population suffers with anxiety on a very meaningful level. That was up from 36% just like the month prior. This is only going to increase as we pick up more problems and we decrease our time in prayer. That's not to say you have to be a member of this society of anxiety and behave the same way. When Paul says anxiety at the top of this paragraph, he uses a really cool word, an interesting word. He says, mer imnao, that is literally to be put into parts what was once whole, drawn in opposite directions, divided, or as many of you will resonate with, I too who have fought anxiety, to go to pieces. That's what anxiety is like. Just go to pieces. Most of the time, the pieces of our mind that, that splinter off and of our heart that splinter off venture into territories where they don't even really belong. My mind likes to shoot into certain territories where it literally has no control anyway and no business spending time there, but it splinters. And it goes in multiple directions. That's how this passage starts. Okay, Don't be like that. At the end of the passage, there's this word peace. And the whole picture now comes together. Peace is to join or to tie together the many parts so that once again they can be one and whole. All essential parts are joined together. The big question is, what happens to help us go from anxiety at the start of this paragraph to peace of God at the bottom of the paragraph? The answer, pray. Pray, pray, present everything to God. All your troubles, present them to the Lord. All your requests, present them to the Lord. And when you do it, do it with thanksgiving. It's the hard work of writing a balanced inventory for those who go through recovery like me. You say, this is all of the stuff that's having an impact on me in a negative way. And here's everything that's good. And we present all that to God at the same time. We pray and we pray and we pray. I like the, the picture of this that my son gave me. May 4th was a Wednesday night, just recently. And at the West Campus, we had a May the 4th be with you party. We were out at a pavilion, um, Case and Trailhead Pavilion. We had like Darth Vader cupcakes and Yoda soda. Uh, lots of fun stuff. We dressed up. Lots of costumes, really good time. And my oldest son, typically very strong with the force, uh, had a momentary lapse with the force, jumped up on a park bench under a pavilion, lost his footing, and fell on his elbow. Bam. I saw in his eyes, this pain's a little different than all other pain I've experienced, Dad. He quickly hid under the park bench that he fell from. I got him out of the bench. I said, hey, man, that was a pretty bad fall. He was in a lot of pain. He handles pain very well. But he said, he said I'm, I'm hurting, Dad. I'm hurting. I can't move it. I said, what we need to do is go get in the van and go to the doctor so he can take pictures of it and we know what we're working with. And he said to me, I don't want to leave the party. So that's when you know you're doing good as a church right there. Uh, he did not want to leave church to go to the doctor. We waited through the party. He sat with his elbow like this and listened to Kane Atkinson, our church planner apprentice, speak about light and God's standard of goodness. And we played games and it was a good time. We sang songs. And then we get in the van and he's still just fighting tears. I know it's not good. We go to Vanderbilt. 
We get the pictures. Doctor comes in, puts the pictures on the screen. Braxton and I are in the room, and he says, well, it's, it's broken. It's broken. Doctor says, this is supposed to be here, but instead it's here. This is supposed to be in one piece, and instead it's in two pieces. And Braxton's taken all in with his eyes really big. And then the doctor gives the good news. We can put that back together. Happens often. Got to go in with one two-millimeter pin, put it in, straighten out the bones, fix it, set it, put it in a really nice cast, and there you go. You got a few weeks, and you got to recover from it. You know how hard it is to get a good picture of two boys? That's the best I got. He's, <laughs> he's literally covering his face. Uh, but you can still see the cast. It's a nice cast. It's a colorful cast. And it's a good image of what we just read. It, the arm works better when the pieces that are supposed to be whole are whole. Your mind and your heart work better when they're, when they're whole. But they go into a million pieces. So God says, why don't you come to me with that? Bring it to me every time it's broken, every time it splinters. A little surgical procedure. That's not, it's not fun. Those kind of real raw, honest prayers. Kind of like surgery. We're going we're gonna to set it. We're going to put it in this cast. The peace literally, Paul says, will guard your hearts and your minds. That's a protection. Braxton has, is protected now. It's setting. It's healing. Why does God do that? Because he cares for you. Because he loves you. He wants you whole and totally satisfied with him. The third Tell yourself the gospel often. I'll be quick on this. Philippians 4, 8 through 9 reads like this. This is the very end of this section before we get to where we started. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. That is to say that naturally you don't think about such things. We have to be taught to think about such things We'll hang out about right here until we learn to think about such things and we walk towards contentment where Paul was. That's not easy to do because we've already established the default is to be fear-based, a nagging, unsettled feeling in the heart of you and me, FOMO. But just for fun, that's not the only acronym of our default thinking that we've talked about from this pulpit before when we've talked about this text from 2016, pop quiz, who remembers ants? That's okay. I know you listen when we preach. I got one hand. Automatic negative thoughts, ants. Some of you have this. And we have to exterminate ants so that everything that happens in life is not viewed through a negative filter first. You know you've got ants when you wake up in the morning and you say, oh, not again. Or you know you got ants when you walk past the mirror and the first thing that comes to your mind is like, really, God, are you serious? You know you got ants when your kids come to you. And the first thought, the filter is, not another inconvenience. But you know you got ants when you're getting ready to go to work. And you're like, how many more sick days do I have left? Can I, can I possibly call out again today? Exterminate the ants. Paul says it's an active thing. It's a practice of thinking about which is good and right and noble and lovely. That means the charge this week is always, always the charge from the assembly is to go tell the gospel to somebody else. But this week we're going to add this charge. Go tell the gospel to you. Gospel your mind throughout the week. Remind yourself of the love of Jesus Christ for you. How you were once dead in your sins. Now you're alive in Christ, and everything that you need is given to you in God. 
Tell yourself that stuff often. Okay, we started with a really negative poem. I don't want to end with a negative poem. I'm going to end with a good one. I'm going to ask Sean to come up with me because the poem that I want to actually end with is the poem he wrote called In You. He put it to music. We sing this. And um, I got a really special opportunity, and I don't even remember what we were doing. We were in the car together, maybe going to lunch, maybe going to a city to do a conference. I don't remember where we were. But I talked to Sean about this song that he wrote called In You. And he told me some of the story of the song, and it had a really big impact on me when it comes to rejoicing always. So I thought I would just say, Sean, anything you want to share about the backstory of that song so they can hear what I got to hear? Yes, so first, glory to God for allowing me to write a song like that. Um, but it was in 2020. We were in a pandemic. We were all isolated. Uh, people were hurting. People were sick. Uh, there was great political divide. And it seemed every other week there was racial violence in the news. Mm. And I just read about the, the violence yesterday, so my heart goes out to those people. Um, so we were experiencing all of these bad things, all of these negative things, and in my mind was coming to me in you. <laughs> Everything we're looking for is in Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is what we need in every situation. Um, that's the solution. So I had this thought in you, so in Jesus. And then I was uh, playing on the piano. Sorry, church. <laughs> uh, this, I didn't say that. This haunting medley. And I had, is in you, is in you. And that's as far as I could go. So then I needed to make some lists and start writing some poetry. So I took all those negative things we were experiencing. Um, so loneliness, hmm. hatred, sadness, um, fear. And then I started to pair those with the good that we have from the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, and the promises we have in Jesus, like faith and hope and everlasting joy and contentment. And I started pairing those together. I took my favorite four and wrote those down. Those are the verses you hear <laughs> in In You. And then I needed a chorus. I couldn't think of anything on my own. So I went to one of my favorite gospel summaries, which is First Colossians uh, 15 through 23, and that's where you get all those rhyming words like uh, creation, reconciliation, accusation, all of that comes from Colossians. So that's kind of where the, the song came from. As it was coming, what were you experiencing? What was God doing for you? Sure. Uh, so I was experiencing contentment. When you're in that and you're thinking of God, you have the contentment of the gospel of Jesus. Um, there was joy in doing it. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I also had excitement to share it with others. So sharing uh, with my wife, Katie, bring a copy home and showing it to her. And then with my friends and praise team. And then a little anxiety, sharing it with a lot of people <laughs> and other churches. But it was great. Um, so it is being shared. Fearless for you shares it. So other congregations sing along with us. I know of Clear, <coughs> excuse me, Clear Creek yeah, in Chattanooga that's also singing this song with us. When we sing it here. And when others sing it, what's your hope for us in this song? Well, of course, just encouragement and healing in the name of Jesus that you would have contentment uh, in every situation and uh, joy and uh, that believers would be drawn closer to Jesus and that maybe a lost ear would, would catch 
the tune. Um, and then personally for North Boulevard and for other churches of Christ that uh, we're still creating some music. So yeah. it's not just a thing that we used to do. Amen. Amen. So let's stand up. We're going to sing it. Very different poetry than poetry of dissatisfaction. As we sing this song, I want to remind you that although you can't always control your circumstances, in him you can always overcome them. And God has given us more reasons to rejoice, reasons that cannot be taken away from us. Let's sing this out and rejoice in the Lord always.